Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Mark chapter 11, verse 15. Mark 11, verse 15. This event that we're going to read about today in two of the Gospels seems to occur on Palm Sunday in Mark, and it seems to occur the next day. But it definitely is put together in the minds of the Gospel writers that this is associated with the beginning of Holy Week when the last days of Jesus were being played out before the cross. And something happened in that week, the very beginning of that week, that I want us to look at this morning and apply to our own hearts. Mark chapter 11, verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He would not allow anyone to carry wares to the temple. Then he taught them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. The scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would take your word and that you would transport us back 2,000 years ago to this moment in the life of your son, that we can see his eyes, his face, and hear his voice through this text. And would his message and his heart be clear to every person here? Father, we come into a time like this sometimes without even a thought or an expectation that you are about to speak but we are looking for you to speak and we ask it in Jesus name amen well Jesus was serious at this moment wasn't he he comes into the temple complex It's a 35-acre facility. This outer court of the Gentiles was to be a prayer where anyone could come, Jewish or Gentile. And it was about 10 acres in size. It was a big, big space. And in this space, they had accommodated the need that many people had when they came to the temple to bring an unblemished animal for sacrifice. Well, after a long trip, that animal might not be unblemished anymore. So they sold and offered animals for sale. And People came from all over the Mediterranean, and so many times they didn't have the proper money to exchange uh, because only local temple coins could be used for those purchases, and so there were money changers there. And Jesus clears the temple. I don't know what kind of image you have in your mind of what Jesus is like, but if you think that he's a wimp, you don't know Jesus. This isn't the first time he's cleared the temple. The Bible tells us earlier in his ministry, right after the wedding at Cana, one of the first things Jesus did was go up at the Passover to Jerusalem, to the temple, and he did this then at the very beginning of his ministry. 
After he turned that water into wine at Cana, nice wedding story, first miracle, he goes there and clears out the temple. He overturns tables. He runs out the money changers. He stops people from buying and selling animals. And in that particular instance, in John chapter 2, he makes a whip out of several cords. He makes a whip and uses it to drive the people out of the temple. And so Jesus was a carpenter most of his life. The vast majority of his adult life, he was a carpenter, and he had no power tools, but he must have had powerful hands. And nobody stopped him from clearing the temple that day. To understand why he was upset, you've got to have in your mind a picture of why the temple was even constructed, the whole purpose of the temple. You see, from the very beginning of creation, when God made you and me, his desire was that you and I would have communion or fellowship with him. In fact, you and I were not made to exist apart from him. And so in the, even in the garden, you have God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, it says, because it was a common practice and he had fellowship with Adam. And then later, you see in the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, every time they had an encounter with God, a theophany, theologians call it, a, a, an appearance in human form before Jesus or God spoke to them in a vision or a dream. Whenever they had an encounter with God, the first thing they would do is they would build an altar to mark the spot where God met with man. And they did that over and over again. Then you come to Moses, and the whole purpose of the Exodus ultimately was that God was going to deliver his people to himself that they might worship him. And so they come to the foot of Mount Sinai after the incredible story of the Exodus. They come to the foot of Mount Sinai, and God descends in his mighty presence on the mountain, and there, is, there are dark clouds, there is darkness, there is lightning, there is fire, there is rumbling, and it is so scary that the people turned to Moses and said, let God speak to you, and you tell us what God is saying, but if God speaks to us directly, we think we're going to die. And God's heart so clearly was set on dwelling among his people that he gives to Moses the design of the tabernacle. It's an elaborate design. There's a lot of detail given on it in the Old Testament. It's easy to miss the point that God wants to live among his people. That through the tabernacle, he's going to come and dwell among his people, a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. But he's going to come, and at least one guy once a year is going to be able to go in a, in a face-to-face encounter with God in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. But the presence of God was among his people. The temple was simply a way of institutionalizing that. It was a permanent structure that had the same design as the tabernacle. And, each, and people could get close to the presence of God, although only one on a special day could go all the way in and face God in person. And this is what God had in mind for the temple. And whatever was happening on the day when Jesus showed up, it was not what God intended. It was not a place where a person could meet with God. And so the sacrificial system, which was designed to, to provide a way to deal with sin so that we could come before God, the sacrificial system had moved from outside the temple, inside the temple, and it was crowding out what was supposed to be a place of prayer. It was crowding out God's original purpose for the temple. And you say, well, Don, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. If you're a Bible scholar, you know that. It was destroyed by the Romans. How does this apply to me? Because now you are the temple. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're a Christian, you've been born again, the Holy Spirit lives in you. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in 
you whom you have from God, and you are not your own. And so inhabited by the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ wants to come to his temple, and he has a couple of expectations of what should be happening in the temple. And we see this in this encounter 2,000 years ago, but I believe this encounter is occurring even this morning, March 29, 2015. Two expectations that Jesus has. Number one, are you meeting with God? Are you meeting with God? After driving out the business people and the money changers, this livestock auction that was taking place in this outer court, after cleaning it out, getting all that out, Jesus begins to teach, and he gives two scripture verses, two explanations for why he had just done that. And the first one is a quote in verse 17, Mark 11. It's a quote from Isaiah 56. Here's what it says. My house shall be called a house of prayer. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And there it is. That's the purpose of the temple. Unfiltered, unhindered encounter with God. Face to face, you and him, nobody else. And the greatest danger to your spiritual life and to my spiritual life is that we can allow all the other good things to come into our life associated with being a Christian, associated with being a church member, associated with following Christ, and I can let all those good things come in and crowd out the main thing that I was made for. What are, what are, what are some examples of that? Well, I've got some. They all start with the letter A. Some of us have the idea that what God wants most from us is, is agreement. Agreement. Agreement with what the church teaches. Agreement with certain doctrines. Agreement with certain beliefs. And I think, well, if I've got it all straight in my mind and I agree with what this church teaches, then God has for me what he wants. He wants a big amen. He wants agreement for me. Others of us think that attendance is what he wants. That being in the pew, being in my Sunday school chair, being at the church, showing up, that if I'm in agreement with what it teaches and I am attending that church, that I'm giving God what he wants. Others of us go to alms, money, financial gifts. We say, if I'm really serious about my walk with God, then I give to him. And the last one has to do with activity, serving and volunteering. And Lord knows we need people to serve and to volunteer. But you can be in agreement with what a church teaches. You can be actively attending it. You can give your alms. You can be active in that church and, and volunteer and serve and still not give God what he most wants from you. And that's your heart and an unfiltered, unhindered encounter with him. When Jesus comes into your life, it's not just about believing the right things, doing the right things, generally being a nice person that he wants. He wants you, you with him. So when Jesus comes in the temple, he expects to find a people who are meeting with God. That's why he gets so angry when that's not happening. They're consumed with substitutes. They're consumed with things that have crowded out the purpose that God had in mind. But there's a second expectation. He also expects, number two, are you being changed by that meeting? Not only are you meeting with God, but are you being changed by that meeting? Jesus explained why he was upset, giving first the quotation from Isaiah that his house is to be a house of prayer. But by allowing other things to crowd out prayer, the result was catastrophic. In verse 17, he quotes Jeremiah 7. He says, you have made it a den of thieves. You have made it a den of thieves. 
Literally, the word den there means cave. You have made it a cave of thieves. Now, what is a cave of thieves about? Well, when thieves are done doing what thieves do, they go back to their cave, their hideout, and they do whatever thieves do when they kick back because it's a safe place. They can just sort of let their hair down. I don't have to be a thief right now. And they go into the cave, and, and they're, they're there, and they're safe, and nobody's bothering them. And then they go back out, and they're thieves again. And they do exactly what it was they were doing before. And Jesus said, because you've let this stuff crowd out what I had the temple, what I had in mind for the temple in the first place, because meeting with me is not the first thing on your agenda, you've let all of this stuff go, then you have made the temple like a cave of thieves where people can go out and live any way they want to, all week long, do whatever they want, not give a rip about what the Bible says, never pray, never encounter God, and then come back to the temple and buy or sell an unblemished animal for sacrifice. Make a sacrifice. Make a little money. Say a little prayer. And then go back out and live any way you want to once again they had missed it and they had reduced the worship of God to a kind of tip given at the end of a meal the problem with this is that Jesus said this temple that I inhabit it's my temple the problem with that whole approach is that Jesus is a king and kings are supposed to be in charge. Kings call the shots. Kings make the decisions. If you're meeting with the king, you're going to be changed by that meeting. It's going to have an effect on you. You're not going to be able to be and stay the way that you are and go out and do what you've been doing. You're not going to be able to stay the same when the king comes in to his temple. You can't. Let's, let's pick on some examples. What do you do when you're anxious? you're afraid, when you're worried, what do you do? We all react in different ways. Uh, maybe you go jogging. Lord knows I need to go jogging. Maybe you go jogging. You relieve stress. Maybe, um, maybe you call a friend and you have a good talk because you're anxious, you're afraid, and talking to them calms you down. But it still doesn't go away. And then you come to church and you hear a pastor preach. And the pastor says, God is mighty. God is is in control, he will deliver you from all your fears, and you give a resounding, amen, and you go home and you're still afraid. Now, why are you still afraid? Because the truth of who God is, your experience of the truth of who God is, is not an automatic experience. It happens when you come face to face with the king, and you come as you are, and you're honest about where you are, and you come face to face to the king. And then you experience the God in his greatness who's able to deliver you from all your fears. And you stay there before him. And you stay there before him. And you stay before him. And then it becomes real. What about when you're guilty? When you're guilty, how do you deal with guilt? Do you rationalize what you did? Do you try to explain it away? Do you just blame somebody else when you're guilty? Whatever it is that you've done, you just blame someone else? Or you go to a counselor when it's really bad? 
Say, I'm guilty, I can't get rid of this guilt. What do I do with this guilt? And you believe with your mind, you know with your head that Jesus died on the cross so that all of our shame could be removed, so that our sins could be removed, so that Jesus died on the cross to deal with our sin and our guilt. But, and you come to the service and you hear the preacher preach it and you say, Amen! But you go home, you're still guilty. Why? Because it's not automatic. It's just not automatic. Just when you trust Jesus, everything goes away. It's a walk. It's a communion. It's a fellowship with him. And when you come to him in prayer, you say, oh, dear God, this is what I've done. I'm, I've been wrong and I've been guilty. And you keep pouring that out to the Lord. And then you, you recall who he is and you recall what he has done. And you talk to him about that and you thank him for his cross. You thank him for the shed blood of Jesus. And then it begins to wash away that shame. It begins to wash away that guilt. And you stay there before him until it's gone and you are no longer the same. What about when you have a burden? How many people have problems here today? This should be unanimous. Now, some of you don't have any problems. That's cool. Or you're a liar. You still got a problem. <laughs> and you're carrying this burden. You have this problem, and you're trying to work it out. You're trying to fix it. You're pri- trying to take care of it, and it doesn't get better. It doesn't get any better. And you know with your mind that that the Bible says that we can cast all our cares on him because he cares for us. And, And you hear the preacher preach it and you can say, Amen! God carries our burdens for us. But you're not experiencing that. And you can amen it all day long, but you don't experience it. Why? Because it's not automatic. How do we experience God if it's not to come into the temple and to come to him in person and we have an encounter with him face to face? And in his presence, we get in a sense his might. We sense his power. We sense his awesomeness. We realize that everything here that we're concerned about begins to fade, gets really small. The burdens look smaller. The mountains don't look so big. Why? Because we're focused on him and his greatness and his majesty and the fact that he is the creator and he spoke everything into existence and he is the king. And the longer I stay in his presence, the more this world begins to fade and the whole truth about my situation begins to settle into my mind and into my heart and it changes me. It's one of the greatest tests of your prayer life is that you're able to go into the presence of God and walk out a different person. And I'm not talking about something you do in one minute, although it could take one minute. I'm talking about going and face-to-face, being alone with him. I can't tell you how many times in my own life where I've felt that kind of anxiety and um, was facing circumstances that threatened me or threatened my family and our well-being. And I, I can remember vividly, I've told the stories here before, times where, where I lost work and I didn't have any income. And I can remember a period of three or four months waiting on the Lord. And each morning, getting up, going out to our family minivan with my flashlight, a journal, my Bible, and staying there in that vehicle, because we had six kids in the house and there was no way to have peace in the house. And going out there and staying there before the Lord, starting out with anxiety up here. Oh God, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to our family? And staying there before the Lord until the truth about who He is, the truth about His care for me, the truth about how He unloads our burdens, and we can cast our cares on him, and he will take them away, staying there until that becomes my experience, not because I talk myself into it, but because I encounter him. 
Are you meeting with him? Are you being changed by that meeting? That's what the temple encounter was all about. My house should be a house of prayer where people encounter him. But you've made it a den of thieves. The things that should be changing aren't changing. And so we should be changed. When Gail and I first married, um, we lived out in the country. We rented a house. And I was serving a church. And I went off to work one day, went to the church, worked a full day, came back just a day or two after we moved in. And Gail had hung pictures on the walls. And um, she had worked hard on it. She thought I would be excited about what she had done. And stupid me. And my wife, I told her I was going to tell the story. She said, don't say stupid. Say inexperienced, inexperienced. And stupid me, I got involved in trying to rearrange what she had done. Now, every man in the woman, in the, and, and woman in the room should know immediately what I had done wrong. But when Jesus comes into your life, into my life, that's exactly what he does, and he has the right to do it because he is the king. He comes to the temple like he owns the place, and he begins to rearrange the furniture and push all the stuff out that was crowding in and keeping it from what it was supposed to be. And that's what happens when the king comes into your life. He doesn't come in and sit down and say, well, let's, let's talk about your life. Let's talk, let's talk about your gifts, your talents. What, what should we do with you? That's not how the king comes. He already knows what he wants to do with you. He made you to do it. He already has a plan in mind. He already made you for specific things that he wants you, nobody else, to accomplish in this world while you're on earth. He already has that in mind. So the king doesn't come in and say, you know, you're in a situation now where you might get out from under the pressure if you were to lie. Let's talk about whether you should lie or not. The king doesn't do that. The king doesn't come in and say, well, should you sleep with that person or not? Should you view pornography or not? Should you spread that gossip or not? He doesn't come in and have those kind of conversations with you and me because he's the king. He owns the place. Some of you are sitting here this morning, you're absolutely miserable because of the things that are not right in your life and you're feeling the pressure, the conviction. Things that have got to go, things that have got to change. And if you're a believer this morning, it's one of the great evidences that a person is a Christian because the king comes in and he does that. He doesn't leave us as we are. When the Holy Spirit is truly inside a person, he is a holy spirit. And he's going to lead you to become holy too, in the way that you live, the way you act, the way you treat people, the way that you think about things, the way you make decisions and what you do with your life. Holy His. Completely His. And I wonder if that's where you are on this Palm Sunday. Is the king coming to your temple and saying, I need to be king, sir? I need to be king, lady. You can't keep doing this. You can't just come to church and sit and leave and go back and do what you were doing. I want you to come to me. I want you to have a face-to-face time with me. I want you to stay with me until I become more real to you than life itself. And allow me in my presence to change you, to change 
you. The reason you feel that way is King Jesus is in the temple. The only thing that may keep you from understanding this message or truly encountering God, there really is a difference between a person who has come to God on his terms and a person who's just trying to be religious. The religious person is trying to figure out how they can be good enough for God. And so it looks like you Baptist people, what you do is, is you walk down an aisle, you take a preacher's hand, you say amen and agree to what they teach, and you get baptized, and everything's cool. And you just sort of check off the list. God wants me to do this, God wants me to do this, God wants me to do this. And what you have missed, if that's your understanding of what it means to be a Christian, what you have missed is that the very name Christian means a little Christ. That to be a Christian is not to be religious and just check off what you think God wants you to do. That being a Christian is someone who has met God and understood his plan for salvation. Someone who recognizes that God sent Jesus into the world and he was the son of God. He was so much a reflection of the Father that he told a guy one time, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus. And Jesus revealed to us what God is like, and he demonstrated to us that God is a king. You say, well, how did he do that? He died on a cross. He demonstrated that God is a king because everywhere he went, everything that was broken, he fixed. Someone was sick, he healed them. Uh, nature out of control, a storm that wants to kill people, he tells it to stop it, and it stops. A demonized person who is out of control because a demon has taken over their primary controls of that person's body, he expels the demon. Uh, Ekbalo, he just expels the demon from that person. And everything that's broken in the world by sin, everything that's not right in the world because of sin, everything that's that's damaged because of Satan and his activity. He goes, and everywhere he goes, he puts it right. He puts it back the way God meant it to be. Say, this is never the heart of God. This is never the heart of God. This is what it looks like when God's in charge. This is what it looks like when he's the king. And so when a person understands that when Jesus died on the cross, he did die for our sins. He died for each of our sins. He took the death that, that our sins deserved. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Jesus took all of your sin on himself, every individual sin. Not sin is just a general idea, but every specific sin that you've ever committed, he took it on himself. My favorite verse on that is what Peter wrote when he said, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Not sin, singular sin, plural. Every individual sin. And if you will confess him, as Lord and put your trust in him as the king, the Bible says he will save you because of his sacrifice. So this morning, we're going to have a time of response. And if you have never trusted Jesus like that, surrendered to him, said, King, come. <laughs> in John 1, 12, it says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the sons or the children of God. You have to receive him. It doesn't happen automatically. It's not because you grew up in a Baptist home or any other kind of church family. It's not because you inherit something. 
It's not because you signed a card or you were baptized. It's only because you have come and personally in your heart you came to Jesus. You said, Lord, I am trusting you with my whole life. Forgive me for my sin. Save me. Save me. Rescue me. I surrender my life to you. Have you done that? The Bible says that every person who has, that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside them and they become a temple of the Holy Spirit. That when the Holy Spirit lives inside a person, he's there to change them from the inside out. And he is relentless. And so you may be the most miserable person in the room today if you're a Christian and you're out of God's will. But you can be encouraged by knowing that he loves you so much that he's not quitting and he's not going to give up until you surrender. But if you've never trusted Christ this morning, I invite you, when we stand and sing in just a moment, publicly and without shame and without hesitation, I invite you to come from the balcony or the floor to come. I'll answer your questions. I'll pray with you. I'll show you the scriptures. You can read it for yourself. And you can leave here this morning with a new life, a temple of the Holy Spirit today. Then, brother, sister, the altar's open. Please use this as a time of worship. You There in the pew, you can bow your head here at the steps. You can come and pray. Don't worry about what other people think and say. Just focus on him. Come to him. Go to him. He's there. He waits for you. Let the king have his way. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you, Lord, for your word and how it is powerful, it is sharper than a two-edged sword, and how very powerfully the Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts. Father, we want to respond to you and what you have said to us in your word. So this time we commit to you, we ask you, Holy Spirit, to hover over every soul in this room. I pray especially for that person who needs to give their life to Christ, who needs to surrender their life and begin to follow him. Would you convince them that this is the time? For that brother or sister who's struggling because they're, they don't want to clear out their temple, they want to hang on to stuff. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convince them that's no way to live. Come, our King, King Jesus, come.